On September 25th, a Ukrainian military transport AN-26 crashed in the oblast of Kharkiv. 26 people died in the crash, with one survivor remaining in a critical condition. We would like to pay our respects to those people who have lost their lives. Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. Are you confused by recycling and are scared of climate change as we are? Ukraine is taking steps to increase their recycling rates, taking an education-based approach. Also, COVID-19 wreaks havoc on Ukraine's poverty rates, and we look at challenges facing Ukraine's orphans across the country. This and more on Zakhartonyi Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So in the past couple of years, environmentalism has become a huge surge with Greta Thunberg going around and promoting environmentalism. So everyone knows that the Nordic countries are pretty eco-friendly. A lot of the recycling gets recycled uh, more over than the rest of the world. And Australia's got pretty good um, recycling as well, not, but not up to the same standards as the Nordic countries. But Ukraine doesn't really have one. And a lot of it is just straight into landfills. So in July, the Ukrainian parliament adopted a framework law on waste management. If approved, it will jumpstart the country's waste processing industry and promote environmentally friendly waste management. Uh, up until this point, there hasn't been really much of a environmental framework into dealing with waste and products that can be recycled and products that can't. So it's, I think it's a good start for Ukraine to move in this direction and fall into this view of helping to save the country because Zelensky has also mentioned that Earth is our only home planet and we should try and make the best of it. So residents in Chernihiv have gotten together to start up a group to help promote making the city a more environmentally friendly environment and to promote uh, recycling in younger children in schools. Yeah, I think that's really good, especially the promoting it with younger children in the schools because the adults might have one mindset regarding waste management, but it's important that um, they educate the kids, especially now, that, um, you know, there's different ways of doing things so that when those children eventually grow up, they will, it'll just be a regular part of their um, life, you know, having to recycle. And the second thing I was going to say on top of that was, I think it's also going to help the country, especially, and it kind of blows my mind that they don't have a recycling program, given that, like, let's face it, the country isn't the richest country in the world, and a lot of people have to, like, make do with what they have. So it kind of blows my mind that they don't have a recycling program where they can reuse stuff. Well, it's crazy because um, in 2018, for example, the city of Kiev only recycled 3% of its trash, which is kind of insane when you think about other cities that would be recycling like 40, 50% of their waste. So, you know, they're starting off from a low bar, but I think, you know, means the, the sky's the limit realistically. So in the city of Chetniev, the first educational garbage sorting station, which is part of the Superstores project, has been installed in the region and it is supported by not only the regional authorities, but also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Czech Republic. But even though this project is a small group, it's still a significant move to promote recycling within the city. And in just six days of work, the sorting station gathers over 500 kilograms of secondary raw materials, such as waste paper, glass, plastic, Tetra pack, cellophane, courier bags, and the saw. And these are these types of materials aren't sorted anywhere else in the city. Going back to the fact that the program they're planning on implementing in Chernihiv, or they already have, is educational. 
I think it's really important because like, I don't know about you guys, but I actually don't know what to do with most of my recycling. Like, you know, you mentioned uh, courier bags and Tetra packs and like, you know, milk bottles and stuff. Like, how are you supposed to recycle that properly? Like, do you guys know? Well, I think in Australia, they they do have like programs to tell you what what is recyclable, what is not. And I think it even comes on those packs that um, when you get a new bin, um, it, it shows you what you can recycle and what you can't. But I think it's just not everywhere so that a lot of people don't real, really realize what's recyclable or not. And then like on the packaging, it, it's not specifically stated as well. I'd say like in Australia, our recycling program is probably not as good as Europe because we only have like the one recycling bin while like in Germany, you have like six bins like and it's like super sorted into what's you've got one bin for like um different colored glass but then for like white glass there's a separate bin and then you got a bin for like paper and then you got a bin for organic and all this other stuff so like even like here in australia and probably like the us and canada we've got a long way to go compared to some european countries oh because i always thought that i know like in america they have to um like you've got the numbers and they have to like organize it based on if it's a number three plastic or a number four plastic and all that stuff. But I always thought that was because they sort it out at the processing center in Australia. So we chuck it in the one bin and then they process that on their own, which is why I always thought it was harder in America because people are turned off by having to know what number goes in what bin. I'm pretty sure that what happens here, but then what I'd say is probably the better program that they've introduced in like New South Wales and most of the states of Australia is that you can do like return and earn on plastic and glass bottles. So the government pays you like 10 cents per container that you return. So I think a lot of people have taken that and that's driven up recycling rates. I reckon if you did that in Ukraine, you'd have everyone. Yeah, everyone would be recycling. <laughs> well, it's a big uh, incentive because it's uh, you're getting your cash back on all these cans and bottles that you've spent on really. And money pretty much drives incentives. Yeah, if you want to change people's behavior, you reward them, not punish them. It's funny you mentioned incentive because that's actually one of the things that they hope to implement in the um, the National Waste Management Strategy until 2030. Uh, so this is a, a strategy that Ukraine implemented in around 2017 to try and match Europe or match the rest of the European Union in their recycling capabilities and, and stuff like that. So money or, or incentive is one of the things that they're, they're trying to like get people to recycle more. Um, education is another thing. Uh, so I don't know, it's, it's, it looks promising in the future. Yeah, but there are some things that are difficult to recycle and one of those is actually batteries. So I'm sure people in Australia, you see sometimes like outside stores that will be like, put your mobile phone battery in this thing. And we actually have specialized collection places for batteries and that's because we have the ability to um, recycle batteries correctly however in Ukraina they actually there's no there are no companies that use um, that can recycle used batteries um, which has been a big problem so there's actually an organization called Battery Surrender and their aim is to help recycle these used batteries and basically get them out of things like landfills where well let's face it they're pretty corrosive so um they have started, I believe it was eight years ago, and they've collected over 20 tonnes of used batteries around Ukraina. 
and they what they do is they send them to a place in Romania, a plant in Romania where they um, get them processed, which is the correct thing to do as opposed to just chucking them into landfills. So what their main aim is at the moment is that they are trying to learn from other countries and they are looking at opening up different uh, battery collection points, like I mentioned, that we have in Australia so that people can dump their used batteries in these collection points and then they can be taken and then processed. But again, that goes back to you need the education and you need people need to know that they, that's the correct place to put your batteries instead of just going with what they know, which is dumping them into landfills. So today there are about 1,500 uh, batch, uh, of these collection points in the different regions of Ukraina, and they want to expand that so that everyone has access um, to these or to a place where they can put their used batteries. Yeah, and I think as Ukraine progresses closer to Europe, recycling rates will um, will go up and like the infrastructure will improve and it'll become more mainstream to see like different colored bins and stuff outside for people to chuck their waste into. In your experience, Alexa, having, you know, been to Ukraine a lot, what's the general or what's the experience you've seen when it comes to waste management and things like that? So I remember when I was a kid and I went like we'd go to Ukraine, like I'd always be shocked that there'd be no rubbish bins. Um, and I thought that was just really weird because like in Australia, like if you go out like in the city or like anywhere touristy, there's bins everywhere to like cater, um, which like improved slowly as Ukraine became more touristy. And then the other thing that was weird is that like, like bin collections and stuff were like quite rare and it was like a weird thing. So I know like in the town where like my family's from, they introduced a bin collection about like eight, 10 years ago. And when they introduced it, it was like really controversial because people were like, well, we don't have any trash. Why do we need bin people to come and collect our stuff? And then so, like, the town council would have to be, like, to people be, like, well, you go into the shop and you buy, like, a can of something. They're, like, that's trash because how do you dispose of this? And they were, like, also because more things are becoming plastic. Like, you can't really burn it as well. Like, it's safer to dispose of it properly. And so, slowly they were able to convince people to get, like, a communal, like, bins around the town so people could, like, dump their waste. But what did they originally do with, like, cans and stuff? So, uh, my parents, like, in the Soviet Union, like, you'd go around collecting, I think, like, cans, paper, glass, and you'd, like, hand it in and you'd get, like, some kind of money for it. So, it was, like, a primitive version of return and earn, but then that all collapsed when the Soviet Union fell apart. So, so people just what? Because you said they have, they say they have no trash, but what? They have some trash. Burn it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. age old solution to everything is yeah. set it on fire. So yeah, I, think, I think before, like, there was like trash that we have today where it's like you've got plastics, you've got um, processed materials. It used to just be sort of like more like wood, more like fabric. And a lot of that stuff you could burn, really, and paper. You could burn that. And you, most of the time, like, these. Like houses and towns, they'd use them as in their pitch. Yeah. Like they'd burn them in their pitch or storage containers or whatever. Yeah. And then they'd, they'd use that for warmth. But then other times they just throw them out into like this open area where they'd burn it there. And I think um, also like because of like the whole collapse of the Soviet Union and recycling became like <laughs> no too one, hard. Yeah, too hard. <laughs> no one cares about it. I think it. Um, it just kind of gave the sense that, oh, because we don't deal with trash, it doesn't matter where it goes, really. And that becomes unsustainable as the population goes up. So, yeah. the thing that they've got this new plan in place.
So moving on to a less positive story, there was a recent study by the Ptucha Institute of Demographics and Social Research, and they found that close to half of all Ukrainians will experience poverty in 2020, which just completely blew my mind when I saw that. So in 2019, if we do a bit of history about poverty in Ukraine, the poverty rate sat at 38.5%. And the prediction for 2020 was that it would be 31.5% because there had been a steady decline over the last few years in poverty, in these poverty rates in Ukraine. However, and like everywhere else in the world, due to the COVID-19 crisis, this steady decline of poverty over the past few years has almost completely been wiped out. So the estimates for this year are closer to 45% that the poverty rate will sit at. And that means that out of every 20 Ukrainians, nine of them will be uh, facing poverty in 2020, which is devastating because that's pretty almost yeah, almost half the country. Out of all of the respondents, 60% said that they had financial losses this year. said that they had a decline in their regular income, 16% lost income entirely, and 14% lost their jobs entirely. And the households that have multiple children were the ones that were uh, impacted the most as a result of this. So the head of the Institute's Living Standards Department uh, spoke to the Ukrainian radio and said that the number of people living in poverty has increased by 2 million people to 16.5 million Ukrainians just in the first quarter of 2020, and that was even before these COVID-19 quarantines were fully uh, implemented in Ukraine. So something that I find crazy, you think about the amount of people in Ukraine who are living in poverty, about 16 million, that's like the population of Cambodia or half of the population of Peru. I know, it's like crazy, like... If when you like put in the perspective of countries, it like it's even more freaky. So this has been a result of not it was COVID nineteen largely, but it also a contributing factor has been decades of stagnation in income, uh, income distribution, and this growing income gap that is um, in Ukraine, and that's why poverty rates have been so high and they were going down but now basically all those gains have just been wiped and they're back to square one basically because of this. So my question to you guys, do you think that the government has done enough, not just in the COVID crisis, but when we look at um, poverty in Ukraine previously, I mean, it was sitting at 30, well, the aim was 31% this year, which is pretty high when we compare it to uh, other countries. Do you think that they're doing enough or have been in the past? So a lot of Ukraine's like woes with poverty kind of stem back to the 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed and... Um, like the whole economy collapsed, like people lost their jobs and, you know, it created like this system of like government underfunding and all that. And that's because people's incomes fell. And so obviously the government lost money and so they couldn't fund services. And as a result, um, whilst Ukraine on paper has quite a generous social welfare system with free healthcare, free education, a lot of free, like free tuition or like government sponsorship of tuition, because there was such a lack of money, everything was underfunded. And so it caused the culture of corruption, which led to stagnation, because why would you reform something when you're getting money under the table? And which is why like the last um, administration was quite effective, because they actually did start to implement real world reforms, and they started increasing the minimum wage that people were uh, were earning. So to bring them out of the shadow, and thus increasing like government um, income, 
whilst also increasing expenditure. But it was, you know, the government was gaining more money than it was spending, which is why, like, the government could suddenly start funding, you know, like, they're fighting a war, but then they could also fund, like, cultural projects and other, like, social welfare. But COVID came along and ruined everything. So the last administration in Ukraine introduced a decentralization reform that kept money and power at the local level, allowing them to be better placed to deal with local issues. And that has allowed us to, you know, put Ukrainian poverty into perspective. Nathan, you mentioned earlier, uh, Ukraine's rate of poverty compared to other countries, you know, Ukraine's is 45%, but you look at a country like the US, there's in 2019 was only 10.5%. And Sweden was only 16%. So it's quite high compared to other countries. Yeah. Um, and when we're looking at neighbours of Ukraine, like Poland, uh, for example, Poland has a poverty rate of 13%. Uh, Belarus has a poverty rate of, well, it's 21% in 2019. But that, Alexa, I know you assume that that's probably going to skyrocket now. Yeah. Um, and Russia has a poverty rate of 14.3%, uh, which is uh, equivalent to roughly 20 million people um, in Russia. So it's kind of mind-blowing when you think that there's 16.5 million people living in poverty at the start of this year in Ukraine, which is pretty close to Russia's 20 million given the size difference in population between those two countries. But it's pretty crazy. Like, you even look at other countries like the UK, which has, like, you know, a pretty high poverty rate of, like, 15%. And then what's the poverty rate in Australia? 13, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 13.2%. Yeah, so, like, it's an issue around the world, and I think more needs to be done to tackle the problem. But it's just, it's a shame that they were actually making that small bit of progress and, and then, it was, like, quite big progress. I'm pretty sure each year they were cutting, like, 8 to 9% of their poverty rate. Yeah, it's true. 385 to 31%. According to the projections, which is, yeah. you know, pretty good. Yeah, and it had been going down since before that as well. So, it's just a shame that more couldn't have been done. I understand, like, they're fighting the war on one hand. But it's just a shame that more couldn't have been done to prevent this massive spike in poverty. I mean, that's almost half the country. That's mind-blowing. Almost half the country. So going along with this uh, similar theme of poverty or we could say disadvantage, in Ukraine, there is a crisis, I would say, of um, orphans and uh, children that do not have parental carers um, and they require places to live. So under Ukrainian law, it demands that orphans need to be given basic needs. So these include clothes and shelter, as well as education and apartments must be provided by the government, as well as certain scholarships and other social benefits. So this is what's required under Ukrainian law for these children because they do not have any adults that are able to obviously provide these services for them. But the sad reality is that the state provides limited services to these children and, you know, volunteer charities have to pick up the slack and um, help out so that these children actually have the ability to survive. So 
One example of this is uh, with the housing situation. The, the Ukrainian government will often buy derelict houses uh, in far-off villages and move the children around the country into uh, houses or places to live that are cheaper for the government that don't really provide these children with any real <laughs> services or anything in the areas that they're living, um, which is a real shame given that you know, we just spoke about how the poverty, poverty level in Ukraine has spiked again. And now we find out there's all these situations with orphans happening. So uh, some stats on orphans in Ukraine. In 2018, there were 22,000 orphans with dead parents and 50,000 children who had no parental care whatsoever. As I mentioned, as a result, these uh, foster homes... Uh, orphanages and boarding schools where these children's have, children have been living are becoming overrun and they can no longer re rely on state support. So we have these certain charities who are picking up the slack, which I think is is a good thing, but it shouldn't be shouldn't be needed if the government was doing you know what's demanded of them by you know, under the law. So Brianna, what can you tell us about some of these charities? Yeah, so there's one charity called Firefly Ukraine, which is um, an organisation set up by George Champ and his wife uh, to supply children with material and mental support. So according to Champ, Ukrainian orphans aren't socialised and this often leads to bad consequences. So for example, many girls who grew up as orphans will get pregnant, usually pretty young, and then they apply to mother and baby centres which don't have a budget like enough to even to buy, even to buy diapers and stuff so um this charity is working to assist these mother and baby centers orphanages foster houses to cover these costs to get baby beds baby strollers clothes and other things for childcare. so i know whenever we hear about um orphans in ukraine most people um mostly think about donbass and how, you know, in these war-torn areas, you know, children's are, children are becoming um, orphaned. But I didn't personally realise that there was um, these issues with um, orphanages all around the country. But I think the crisis in orphanages in Ukraine, again, it's like a remnant from the Soviet system, which treated orphans quite poorly and put them in these institutions. And, you know, the conditions weren't great. And so it didn't really breed a healthy environment and all that and i'm pretty sure adoption rates in ukraine are, aren't amazingly high compared to other countries so you know it kind of creates like a closed cycle because you can't really escape the poverty so brianna mentioned firefly uh ukraine but there's uh, two other ones as well one's called orphan education club and the other one's called father's care and orphan education club has a, a, a unique take on this because their aim is to obviously provide education to these children and i have a quote here from one of the people they say that the goal is to change children's thinking so they become little entrepreneurs it doesn't matter how much they earn i thought that was an interesting uh quote because it's trying to encourage children not just to focus on taking jobs, but also trying to get them out there, trying to get them creating jobs and actually, you know, helping them to contribute to Ukrainian society, which I, I thought was, was really, really good. However, of course, there's a alternative position to this. And this comes from people that work in the orphanages and receive money from the government to work in these orphanages. Some of these Ukrainian workers have opposed these uh, new reforms that have come in. So since 2017, the government has introduced a deinstitutionalization reform. 
And the aim for this is to move children out of uh, state orphanages and move them into institutions where they are closer to their families. So that means that they still have ties to their families, whether it's because, you know, for economic reasons, the families can't take care of them or they move to um, other relatives if their parents have died or if they can't stay with their families. But it still keeps that connection between the children and the adults which is what they're saying in this with these new reforms is important for the children they need to have those role models um, many countries have gone through similar reforms but in ukraine some of these workers oppose these reforms because they're worried that it will cause mass layoffs in the orphanages and this completely blows my mind because if the aim of you know setting up these programs to help children is to reduce the amount of um, orphans and to reduce the amount of poverty in Ukraine. it blows my mind that they are worried about keeping this current trend because they just want to keep their jobs yes yeah, so it's great that ukraine's implementing these reforms and i think as with every reform there's always people who are against change because you know it rocks the boat but i'm pretty sure the people against this reform will be in the minority and i think Ukrainian society wants to progress forward. And I think this is quite a good reform that will improve the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. And I hope that they, I hope you're right, it is in the minority, all these workers, and that, you know, their criticism of the program won't impact what actually needs to be done for the children. If you would like to help out with this cause, you can go to fathers-care.org, orphans-club.com, and fireflyukraine.com to help out these orphans in Ukraine. In the news this week, the Russian occupation forces in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic are aiming to eradicate Ukrainian language from their schools. They say they are doing so to comply with their so-called constitution, which states that Russian is the only state language. This is part of Russia's long-term plans to isolate the children of Donbass from Ukraine. For example, earlier this year, the separatists prevented some students from crossing into Ukrainian-controlled territory to sit their final exams and apply for university. Ukraine has joined the EU in not recognizing Lukashenko as the president of Belarus after he held a secret inauguration ceremony. Streaming giant Netflix has partnered with two Ukrainian dubbing companies, Postmodern Production and Tak Traba Production, According to Film.ua, the parent company of both studios, the companies will provide Ukrainian language dubbing services for Netflix's English content. US Justice of the Supreme Court Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on September 18. Ginsburg was the daughter of Ukrainian Jewish immigrants who fled to the US as a result of Jewish persecution in the Russian Empire. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.